Good morning. Do you really believe what that song just stated? How about on this side of the room? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Today's message is sola scriptura, scripture alone. And we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Tomorrow is a watershed moment in history. And I'm not talking about Halloween. Because a watershed moment is an event marking a unique and important historical change, of course, on which important developments depend. On October the 31st, the year 1517, 505 years ago tomorrow, a young 33-year-old monk nailed his 95 thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This man's name was Martin Luther. Now, the Reformation had started, but when he nailed his 95 thesis, it really picked up steam. We have the Protestant Reformation where we as Baptists, that's where our roots come from. Actually, the Anabaptists came out of that movement, and we came out of that. Now, he did not discover any new truth or truths. He did not discover anything new. Rather, he uncovered biblical truth that had been lost. By the way, as Southern Baptists, let's look at ourselves for a moment. We've already declared that we are the people of the book. Talking about Scripture, and I've shared this with you before, the reason the pulpit is in the center of the platform is because we believe the Word of God is at the center of our worship. But as we know today that biblical illiteracy is going everywhere. People think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. We laugh about that, but a sad tragedy that a lot of our young people do not know the basic Bible stories. Perhaps you were told when you were just a child. And there have been few periods as successful in provoking change and growth than the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was not alone. There was another gentleman named John Calvin, Yurik Zingwe, and Conrad Gribble, to mention a few. They all sought to reform the truth through theological principles. And it wasn't until the late 20th century, well, probably the early part of the 20th century, these became known as the five solas. They are sola scriptura, scripture alone. Solus Christos, Christ alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus gratia, by grace alone. And sola deo gloria, glory to God alone. And today we're going to look at sola scriptura. Because you can make an argument, perhaps that's the most important one, because it's the foundation of Christ alone and faith alone. Let's turn our attention to the text, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He is writing, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised or contrived tales, 
myths or fables. The Christian faith is not rest upon, it's not built upon clever stories. Its truth is founded in historical facts, which were corroborated by eyewitnesses. For example, you take the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know by archaeological evidence that there was a guy named Pontius Pilate who was a uh, perfecter or governor, let me put it that way, of Judea in the time. We also know by Josephus, a Jewish historian, there was a guy named Jesus from Nazareth. As you look at the crucifixion, Roman soldiers were around that cross. Now, Roman soldiers, if he did not his duty or he left his post, he would not be punished, he would be killed. So he was dead when he got off that cross. In fact, they punctured him with the spear to make sure Jesus was dead. But here's the point. They put him in a tomb. And this tomb was known by everybody because Caiaphas, the high priest, went to Pilate saying, he prophesied that he returned in three days, raised from the dead. So they sealed it with the Roman seal and put a garrison of guards at that tomb. That was more than just four or five guards, perhaps as, high, as little as 12 on up to 20. The next day, the seal was broke, the stones rolled away, and the guards were gone. And here's is the question. Nobody throughout the course of human history has ever denied that the tomb was empty. In fact, the grave clothes were folded neatly where the body once lay. Not one person. Nobody has ever been produced. It was in the best interest of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman government to tell these people to be quiet and to run that dead body through the streets. But nobody was ever produced. And every one of the disciples stuck to their story even when put to death. And there's many other eyewitnesses that saw the risen Christ. So my question to you is, how do you explain the empty tomb? Our faith is built on historical facts that happened. People saw it. In fact, the, the Gospels tell us that Christ did so many more things. But these have been told to you that you may believe. So it's based upon historical facts. Look back in verse 16. We may know to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had been an eyewitness on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look back in verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had seen the majesty and glory of Christ. By the way, the Mount of Transfiguration can be found in Matthew chapter 17. Verses 1 through 8, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. As you read that account, you read about Peter, James, and John were given a foretaste of the coming kingdom. It was a glorious demonstration that they could never forget. And several times in his early epistle, 1 Peter, Peter spoke of Christ's return. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. 
Peter considered the doctrine of Jesus' second coming very important, one that all his readers should always keep in mind. In verse 17 and 18, he now describes what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verse 17. Read verse 17 and 18 again. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made, or a voice came to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased, or some translations will say, with whom I take delight in. And we ourselves heard this utterance, this is verse 18, or voice made, or which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter desired to communicate the majesty and the glory of the Savior, which he and a few bands of inner disciples were uniquely privileged to see on the mountain that day. The goal is to quit looking back at his first coming, but to look towards his second coming. Let me just lead to the punch. He is taking a historical event that he witnessed personally. As we see in verse 19, all the prophecies about him are true. It was fulfilled in the work and person of Christ. Therefore, the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, what will you do in the future, are just as true. So you can stand on that. Look what he says in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure or strongly confirmed. He's reminded of God's written word that came by the prophets. God's voice on the mountain that day made the word of the prophets more certain because the transfiguration was a fulfillment of what they had prophesied. Both the prophets and the transfiguration pointed to the kingdom of Christ that is to come. Do you realize that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies of Old Testament? As high as 350, some say even 400. These people wrote way back before the come, sometimes three to four years before Christ even came. And spoke about what he would do, how he would die, how he would raise again, all his work, and he fulfilled every last one of them. Look what he tells us. He gives us an imperative in verse 19. This prophetic word has been made more sure. Look at verse 19. Which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I remember reading that in the book of Psalms. And it has authority. See, the problem today is we are always talking about our experiences. Uh, well, I experienced this or experienced that. And sometimes we take that experience to assess if something's true or not. Okay, it's good to look back. What has God done in your life? What is God doing in your life? And what has God promised to do in the future? Because God's already done something he's currently doing, and he's promised to do something in the future. Now, it's great to give testimony about what God has done, but it's also be tethered to Scripture because God will never contradict himself. See, as, as Baptists, we've gone so far the other way, we just stick to the Word, and we don't talk about experience, and some people just talk about experience and don't tie it to the Word. It should be both. 
And that's what Peter's doing. Look, this event was not something that happened out of the blue. This was tied to what the scripture said. That prophecy is true. And if Peter was here today, I think he would shout as loud as he could because he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. You can know that he's coming back just like he said he's going to. Peter, as he wrote, I wonder if that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration kind of faded as he thought about what is to come. Oh, look at the world in which we live, dearly beloved. It's messed up. But we can have that peace and the hope because this as he fulfilled it in his first coming. He is coming again, just like the book of Revelation tells us. All the stuff we've been reading about is going to happen. Old Testament prophecy is a light that's shining into an extremely dirty, nasty, and immoral world. The world is darkened by sin, but God's word holds a light to the future. It enlightens us as believers about his ways. And the day of Christ's return is coming. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone. And the day is near. Aren't those good words this morning? This ain't going to last forever. We're not going to be in darkness forever. We have the lamp of God's word. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Look at verse 19. That prepositional phrase that starts with until, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What a great comparison is making. You have lamps at the house, right? You turn on the lamps when it gets dark. Am I correct? But what is a lamp compared to the sun when it rises like it is right now? Beautiful sunny day outside. You can take the strongest lights you can. It cannot compare to the sunlight that is generated by the sun. Just as the Bible, God's word, shines a light for us, or in this dark world to tell us where we need to go and look towards the future, that is nothing compared to the morning star, Jesus Christ himself, when he comes back in all his glory and shines forth his presence everywhere. That's the context. That is the illustration. That is the contrast that Peter is making here. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the synod of David. Here it comes, the bright morning star. Patience to Scripture, dearly beloved. It's pointing us, leading us the way. But one day, the morning star is going to come. And it's going to shine forth in all his brilliance and glory. Peter saw a glimpse of that on that mountain. And he's telling us, I saw it. I was there. I heard the voice. The prophecies are true. Pay attention to the word. Because it's your lamp that's shining in a dark place. It will guide you. and Protect you. Until he comes, Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit to illuminate scriptures. I was privileged to go to a seminary and to learn that's nothing compared to the Holy Spirit that will illuminate scriptures for you. 
give you understanding. Even our faith, even the fact I've declared to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God does not come from me having some special knowledge. The Holy Spirit revealed that to me. Therefore, my faith itself is a very gift. So he takes all that and he continues unpacking in verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Let's break this down a little bit. Scripture should be interpreted only in context. What I mean by that, if you're reading a verse and you're confused about it, look at the verses before it and after it. Look at the chapter. Look at the chapter within the book that you're reading. Look at that book. Where does it fall? The Old or New Testament. And then look at the whole canon of Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Most of your Bibles that you have will have little letters beside certain phrases. That's telling you that the New Testament author is quoting Old Testament Scripture. So if you're having, old, if you're having a hard time with the Old Testament, look how the New Testament writers handle that text. Because they're on the guise of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to understand His Word. He doesn't want you lost in the dark. What does that mean? No, He wants you to know. But he's not just going to give it to you. You need to dig in there. You need to study. Grab hold of it. And when you do, I don't know if Alexis has seen this or not. Although I'm up here by myself. She'll come in. I've been there maybe crying or I may be shouting. What's going on? I'm studying scripture. <laughs> I'm getting excited about something or something's making me weep. Scripture will talk to you. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Uh, scripture is not to be interpreted according to one's own individual liking. <laughs> I'm going to say this again at the end, but make no mistake about it. There's only one way, and that's through Christ, John 14, 6. People say, well, that's awfully exclusive, Tim. No, it's not, because it's inclusive, because Jesus says, I don't care who you are. Come unto me, just as you are. Don't worry about cleaning yourself up. Come on, and I'll wash you clean with my shed blood. Scripture cannot be correctly interpreted without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. If you're looking through Scripture, you think you have a new idea, and you pray, and you talk to other people, and you look back, if you're talking about something no one else through the whole course of time have ever dealt with, you need to check that. Most of what we're talking about has been expounded upon for the last 2,000 plus years. Here's one you need to look up. Here's your homework if you really want to dig into something. God's will Versus man's will. How's that work out? Well, there's tons of books. I'll give you six right off the bat as you walk out the door. But it's those studies that get you into the Word. Half the time, I end up chasing rabbits for about a day and a half. Oh, i got to get back to the text. Now, the Greek vocabulary and syntax in this particular setting... The Greek word translated inspiration or interpretation, excuse me, means literally unloosing the act of or process of explaining, explanation, or interpretation. It comes from the root word meaning to solve. What does that mean? The prophets cannot really interpret it, what they were saying at that given time. They didn't understand its meaning and its implications because the message did not ornate, originate with them. It came from God. That's what he means. The prophets didn't even know what they meant. Because the source of revelation is God himself. Look in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
Now that word for is a conjunction, but it's subordinate here. That means for no prophecy. So it's expanding upon or unpacks what verse 20 says. Just as I stated that prophecies are originated by God, not by the prophets, prophets themselves. Look at verse 21 again. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. As the authors of Scripture wrote their prophecies, they're impelled or borne along by God's Spirit. What they wrote was inspired by God. Which brings in now 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now literally, that means God breathed. Produced by the Holy Spirit of God. Literally the air that was in God's lungs and He breathed out. Now bear with me. Genesis 2-7 talks about something here, about God breathing into something. The birth is the creation of man. What it says, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. If you look back in the creation account, you will see God speaking everything to existence, and it happens. But something different with man. He reached down with his own hands and formed us out of the dust of the ground. But the verse goes on to say more. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. That separates us from the rest of creation. Because God breathed into you and to me and every human being his breath of life, and now we are a soul. Now, the interesting thing about this particular word in this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that's also used to refer to a sailing vessel carried along by the wind. Now, Acts chapter 27, verses 15 and 17, the context of this, they're out sailing. Luke is with Paul, and this big wind comes up, and he says, when the ship was caught up in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven Along. And then in verse 17, he talks about after they hoisted it up the sail, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, fearing that they might run aground in the shallows. They let down the sea anchor and this way let themselves be driven along. So here's the point. What drove that ship through the water? Well, they had sails, right? What made that sail pull out? The wind. So they're at the mercy of the wind for that power. The same way the Holy Spirit was breathing to the men. The men were conscious. God used their talents, his experiences. But it was his wind that directed him, his breath that directed them to what they needed to say. In fact, I'll go a step further. I tell you, he even gave them the words to speak. What the words to write down, because the Greek is so specific. Go back to John 14, 6. Ego, I, me. Literally translated, I, I am. They trust us on the I. I am the way, definite article, the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The emphasis on Jesus saying, I am the only way. We talk about God loves you. That's a perfect, perfect passive, I believe. I might be wrong. But the verb is saying that he loved us from eternity past to eternity future. It doesn't stop. There's five verses, I mean five verbs, excuse me. Five tenses of verbs in the Greek. And we don't have that in English. We only have past, present, and future. My point being, the human authors of Scripture were controlled by the divine author himself. They were consciously involved in the process. They weren't taking dictation. 
and they were not in some type of dreamlike stance. God used their time, their talents, their experiences, all to communicate his word. And if you look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible repeats itself a lot. You know why? Because I have a tendency to be a little hard-headed. And chances are you are too. The Bible tells us how God worked in human history. Even all the obstacles that came his way, he continued to work and accomplish his promises. Because all Scripture is inspired by God, verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What does it mean, profitable for teaching? Doctrine. That Scripture is our source for doctrine, for our teaching, for our instruction. Even in the Old Testament, you have the, the doctrine of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. You have the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3. And you have the nature of atonement found in Isaiah chapter 53. So the Scripture should be our source for doctrine. It's also profitable for reproof or rebuking. It exposes the areas of the false teachers. And I may re refer to our own lives if we have something false we're holding on to or something we need to get rid of. It will rebuke you of that until you need to change that. Scripture shows us our failures. Clarify what's happened and how to lead us into a new sense of peace. It's profitable for correction. It's helpful in convicting the misguided and disobedient, helping restore us back on the right path, to restore us to spiritual conditions that we have forfeited. Now, you can't lose your salvation. You understand that. Nothing can take it away. But we can do things to hinder our fellowship with God called sin. You ever pray and you feel like your, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and nothing's being heard? Perhaps, perhaps there is some unconfessed sin that's keeping you from having that direct line to God. You haven't lost your salvation. You just affected your fellowship with him. And the reason he convicts you of that is not to make you feel uh, stupid or ignorant or just you just can't do anything right. He wants to point that out to you so you restore that, his fellowship with you because he cares about you. That enough. You realize God wants to be there in the nighttime when you lay down to sleep. God wants to be there with you when you wake up in the morning. God wants to be there when you're driving your car to work. God wants to be here when you go into school. God wants to be there when you have to bury a loved one. God wants to be there with you when you have a birth of another one. He wants to be there 24-7 a day. And he's available. Once again, it has to be our choice. It has to be our choice. You have profitable for training or instruction in righteousness. Moral training that leads to righteous living. A discipline in scripture that will lead to a holy lifestyle. <laughs> I've heard people say many times, that preacher stepped on my toes. But I say something to you, toes are too too low he's aiming for your heart and the reason you feel that conviction is the holy spirit's working in you because you belong to him he wants to change you into the image of his son he wants nothing to impede your fellowship with him look at verse 17 look at verse 17 of second timothy 3 why is all this so that the man now ladies that's the word anthropos in the Greek. It can mean mankind. So that includes you too. Just make that point. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
that Greek words translated adequate, sometimes complete, or can be translated thoroughly. It's describing a person that is in, is a, uh, is in fit shape or condition. Therefore, this is describing a person who's completely furnished to do whatever God is calling him or her to do. They will be fully qualified and prepared to undertake any task that God puts before you. So what I'm saying to you is that tugging on your heart, God telling you to do something this morning, he's going to give you what you need. You have it all in his word. How tragic it is to hear somebody says that they're spiritually unprepared. When you have scripture really at hand, and look here in the United States, man, we have Greek, we have Hebrew, we have multiple translations in English. You have all these Bible tools you can have. There is no excuse for us to sit back and say, I, I'm not prepared to do that. You have the Bible. So who wants to go up and give a word right now? Oh, you got the Bible right in front of you. See how this turned out on you? Everyone should be ready to give reason for the hope that you have. Doesn't mean you have to give, get a three-point sermon. You just tell people what God has done for you, what God is doing, and what God has done in the future. I'm reminded again this week that we serve a God of reconciliation. He reconciled me to both my parents and reconciled them to them to reconcile them to himself. I don't care what you've done and what you think you have done. If you can drop your pride and humble yourself before God and say, God, I've messed up, I've sinned against you, please help me. He will do the work. Long time ago, right up to 87, the town of Bellevue, First Baptist Church, a young man gave his life to Christ at the age of 33. Believed he was being called into the ministry. Didn't know what that meant. Never thought that I would end up doing what I'm doing now. But I remember in the early days of that, I got down and knelt. And I told God, if I just have one more chance with my dad, just to tell him I love him, and that's it, that's good. But God being God... Didn't do that, he kicked open the door. You gotta realize something. I, I can't even really express this. Here I am, years later, in the hospital room as he's going off to surgery, praying with my dad. That's all because of him. All because of him. You're prepared, you have everything you need to be prepared. You have the Holy Spirit. You have this word. We have each other. What else do you need? Oh, God will give you the words. Trust me, I know. Scripture and Scripture alone must be our plumb line in which we measure all things. With so much fake news, rumors, gossip, running amok in our society, so many imposters claim to have a new revelation, some new information that is based on their personal experience and nothing else. We must devote ourselves to the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. What does the Bible say? 
Many things you hear are not even in the Bible. God only helps those who help themselves. So we're in there. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Nothing we could do. Nothing. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's nowhere in there either. Search the word. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Scripture is the standard by which we measure everything else. All our teaching. Doctrine is a big word that means teaching must be conformed to the rule of Scripture rather than trying to force Scripture to say something that it does not. When people take Scripture and they twist it, for example, one of my favorite ones, wives, if you would submit to your husbands, everything would be much better in our society. Well, it does say that in Ephesians, but you take a little out of context because the next verse says, and Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Hello. Do you know that Scripture says more to the husband than it does the wife? You know that we as husbands are supposed to be the head of the household. It doesn't mean you do what I say and I'm supposed to be a dictator. However, it does say the condition, the spirit condition of my house is up to me. Not to the preacher, not to the youth minister, not to the children's minister. It's up to you as the head of the house. Period. This also includes not conforming Scripture to our lifestyle or ethics, but our lifestyle or ethics must be conformed by Scripture. What does Scripture say? It has to be Scripture alone. That has to be our plumb line. That has to be our rule of faith. That's our cornerstone. And it's built on historical facts. No, Martin Luther was persecuted by the church at that time. He read Ephesians that were say we're justified by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone. He saw the sale of indulgences which is basically forgiveness of sin to get loved ones out of purgatory. He said, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And they persecute him for it. In fact, they put him before a council. Said, you can recant now or you'll be excommunicated from the church. You know what he did? I can't quote him verbatim. But basically he said, this is the word of God. This is where I must stand. I cannot do anything else. What about you? Are you ready to take that stand on Scripture? Because it's already happening. Take a look at our society. People are taking Scripture and they're twisting it to fit their lifestyle, to fit their goal. How can we defend Scripture? We don't even know what it says for ourselves. And I would say we need to know what they're doing, how they're twisting it, so we can turn and say, no, this is what it's actually saying. This is the truth. We have to stand on truth. In this day and era where we have all this fake news and everything going on, it's hard sometimes to distinguish the truth. Listen to the Holy Spirit which leads me by saying this. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you given your life to Christ? If not, now's the time. What's keeping you back? What's keeping you back? Is it that sin that is happening here in God's even now 
rebuking you of. So let's deal with that. I'm going to end with this illustration. You know, before I gave my life to Christ, I looked around the world. Brooke was just a little little baby at this time. It's a small thing. And I thought, wait a second, this is not, this is not the, the America I grew up in. You know, what's going on? This is way back in the early 90s. I'm not like 93, 94. And as the invitation was given, I can't tell you what the preacher preached on. I don't remember any of that, but I do remember this. Clear as day. As I stood up and I was holding her and I, I looked at her, I said, God, this is, I don't want my daughter to experience these things. I don't want her to get exposed. And it's like he told me, Tim, that's great. But first we need to deal with you. You've heard my gospel. You've heard what my son has done for you. What are you going to do now? I gave my life to Christ. I gave my life to Christ. And maybe you feel that way now too. You look around and say, this is not the, the society where I grew up in. The answer is the gospel it has to start with us first. And a word of encouragement for all of you in here that have a part of blast. I know it gets long. It gets trying. But you know why the kids keep coming back? Have you ever thought why they keep coming back? You yell at them sometimes. Have to discipline them sometimes. You know why they keep coming back? Have you figured it out? Because they see the love of Christ in you. They see the love of Christ in you. And they want it for themselves. They want that. Our job is simple. Keep loving on them. Keep teaching them. And keep praying that God will open up doors to their parents, grandparents, their relatives. I'm telling you, from my personal experience and by the word of Scripture, God is a God of reconciliation. If you seek him with all your heart, you better hold on. He'll knock your socks off what he and he alone can do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for rising up men and women who have stood on your truth for so many years. We thank you for those who translated into our language. Father, we have so many different translations. And yet too often we just throw your Bible over as a paperweight that collect dust. We never open its pages. We never invite you to speak to us through your word. Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. We want to be used of you to reach our community, to reach our state, to reach our country, and indeed the rest of the world. Father, I thank you for the ones within the sound of my voice. And Father, I pray that each one of us will have the courage, the wisdom and discernment to follow you and how you instruct us. Knowing that great truth that you don't call the equipped, rather you equipped 
the called. May nothing keep us back from serving you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.